Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The binary string lay dormant in the memory core. It had lain there for a cyber eternity awaiting a command. It had a destiny and purpose, but none of that fell within its own parameters. It waited to be invoked, to replicate, to fill the registers of its processors and release its payload to the world. Then the command string came. It responded, it interfaced with the external networks, it executed audio output, and we all heard the words, Welcome to the District of Wonders. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to Show 405. I am your host. Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What do you think of that little bit of flash fiction? That was The Binary String by Peter Taylor. Now, if you remember, in our newsletter, last last outing or the first outing of this kind of revamped newsletter, we asked for like a little story of 400 words. And that is the story that came through. Fantastic. Peter, thank you so much. And a big thank you to our very own Amy H. Sturgis on the mic. So... If you you know, we're still open if you want to kind of do a little kind of 400 words, you'll have to kind of sign up with the newsletter and you know, send it in that way. But you know, we're still keen to get some little stories. So, I'll tell you what's coming in today, sure. Lots of great, lots of great things. Got an interview with Becky Chambers. This is the author of The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, a fantastic first novel that Becky's went and wrote. Just brilliant. Then we have Flash Fiction again, The Ravages of Time by Alex Schwarzman. Now, I was meant to play this last week and I didn't even... Jeremy had it all rode up on the kind of show notes and I missed it, totally missed it. Then we have none other than the main fiction and it's David D. Levine, The Wreck of the Mars Adventure, which was originally published in Old Mars. This was the, the kind of anthology ed by George R. R. Martin and Gardner Dos was... What a great story it is as well. And then right at the end, we have another interview. We've got Jeff Lane. Jeff Lane, who's been on the show, who's kind of narrated and who's wrote many books. One of his books, or his, his time travel book, One Way, is getting made into a film. Oh, man. How are you doing? Why am I stuck here? You know what I mean? On the bloody mic. And all the it's happened all around us. Am I getting left? So we've got a great interview with Jeff as well, just kind of, you know, how how it became, you know, a reality as well. So that's all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Please forgive as well if you think this is sounding a, a slightly echoey for some, some reason. I don't know what I've done. I've done all my settings. I've actually updated the kind of the software to this El Capitan and Adobe Audition is kind of... 
it's not, it's not firing an all four cylinder, so I've got to kind of work out why that's happening. So, yes, it does sound like I'm at the bottom of a kind of tin well. <laughs> so, first up, like I say, we have a little interview with Becky Chambers, author of The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. Buy this book, you won't be disappointed. So, Becky. Tell us about this book, because I'm right, well, I'm probably now about, say, three quarters of the way through, so without giving the end in the way, <laughs> tell us about this story, because, like I say, it's just, it's got me hooked, you know, oh. beyond belief, to be quite honest. That's, that's fantastic. Uh, yeah, so my book uh, is about the crew of a ship called the Wayfarer. They're a a wormhole construction ship. Uh, in my future, uh, wormholes are the way that you, you get around. They're the roads, essentially. So these guys aren't uh, anybody important. We're not talking any big uh, heroes, no big movers or shakers here. These are just people trying to, to get through their day, basically. Um, and so what you've got is you've got this this crew of hardworking folks, and they've been handed a job, the biggest job they've ever been given and it could change a lot of things for them. So the book uh, follows their their trip from, you know, sort of the edge of the galaxy to the middle and uh, all the things and people and and places they encounter along the way. I tell you what I like Betty because it's I mean it's total science fiction but you you just seem to have this kind of and I don't know if this is, you know, you, you've wrote because I don't really know much about you. You know, I don't know if you've <laughs> wrote many before like this but it's for me it's total character-driven story and that is just what I love do you know what I mean and these are I mean some of these aliens you know are total aliens and sometimes that kind of puts you off you know when you're reading science fiction you can't really imagine them but you seem to have this gift of like quite bizarre aliens but you certainly bring them to life is that did you intend to, to go that in this direction with it I did. I'm, I'm very happy to hear that because that that was my intent. Um, this is my first, so I'm 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 glad to hear that I I got out of the gate well. Um, I, my background is um, my mom. Uh, she's she's an astrobiology educator, but her her background's in biology, and so she um, really instilled an interest in me in in sort of the weirder side of nature. Um, so while the necessity of science fiction is that you have aliens that are like us, you know, like us enough that you can, you can talk to them and uh, relate to them. I, I really am drawn to, you know, sort of the, the weirder side of evolution, you know, like let's, let's have some people with, you know, without faces, let's have tentacles and, and, you know, because that's, that's how evolution works. That's what we would see out there. What you, when you come to actually write a novel, you know, was it a bit of a daunting thing of, for you is writing, you know, can you, can you get to A to B quite easily? You know, is it something that you kind of, you, this book's, you know, it's took you, because sometimes I taught people, you know, and it's took them like 10 years of like mm-hmm. putting it back and, you know, putting it back in the drawer, I'll get it out again. And did this one just kind of, you know, for your first book, was it, how was it to, to actually write it? Uh, it? It did take a long time. Um, I first came up with the characters about 10 years ago. Um, I was, I was, I, yeah, I was, I was in college at the time and um, I was honestly, I was bored at my desk job and was like, I'm going to make some aliens today. Um, so they were something I kept coming back to over the years. Um, by the time I finally sat down to, to write it, to put it all together, I had a lot of material already. I had a ton of scenes. All the character work was done. You know, all the relationships were, were set in stone. I just needed to stitch it all together. So, um, you know, writing is something um, that does come to me naturally, but, but the, the the actual forging of a book was something that, that took a, a lot of time and 
uh, working up a lot of courage. Now, again, something that kind of caught me eye is, you know, like, is the title, you know, The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. That's quite a, a quirky, you know, mouthful for a, t- a title. Do you know it? Yeah. It, it, was it that title to begin with? Or has this been through numerous changes and over, you know, like a 10-year structure? Um, actually, for a long time, I was just calling it the Tunnelers um, because that's what that's what they are. And, you know, build, wormholes are referred to as tunnels. So that's their their profession. And when I, when I uh, decided to finally give it a go, I was like, well, that doesn't, that doesn't really tell you anything about what this is, you know, and I started um, thinking about, oh, you know, what what's the point here? What am I trying to say? And, you know, um, and I've gotten totally lost and tangled up <laughs> myself. Can I go back? You certainly can. <laughs> Thank you. Um, no, so when it, when it came to picking this title, I wanted something that um, reflected the, the arc of the whole story. You know, there isn't um there's no MacGuffin here there's no like big you know powerful plot driving it it really is just this slice of life about these people during this particular time so uh to me the the book or the the title reflects that about the book you know this is this this is the journey they're taking and that's that's what we're going on here well I think again you know like that's you know how I've discovered it you know it's just like yeah, it's it's. There's nothing massive. There's nothing. You know what I mean? It's just this story. Like exactly what you said, a slice of life. But it's like say the gift you've got is you know bringing these characters. You know, it's actually watching them from the kind of the side and just watching how this like their lives play out. You know, and I think that's the like, see in this kind of in our time now a breath of fresh air with this you know the science fiction story you've got there. I see, you know, I was tr- checking on you there and you, you kind of did this on Kickstarter. Now tell us, because it, I know it's, it's up now with a big publisher. So how's all, you know, how would all that unfold? Uh, it was a, it was a pretty crazy trip. Um, at the time, so I, I sat down to write the book uh, early 2012. Um, I was still freelancing at the time and about two thirds of the way through my first draft, my, my work dried up. Um, I had some other gigs lined up for the summer, but I had this this two-month chunk of time where I had nothing. And uh, I was in there going, okay, well, I've I've come this far with this book. I, I really don't want to put it down, but I, you know, I need to eat. So um, it was sort of my litmus test. It was like, all right, let's see if people are actually interested in this. Let's see if this is something people actually want to read. And if not, maybe it's time I put this to bed and you know go get a real job uh so I I just went to Kickstarter and was like hey you know um I'm working on this here's what the story is uh here's what I need I need two months to finish it and you know put it out there and you know cross my fingers and hope for the best and I, I no one was more surprised than me that it was a success um and so at the 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 initial plan was to to publish traditionally. Um, I was upfront about that in the Kickstarter. I said, you know, this is this is what I'm pursuing, um, and and I, I I started down that road at first. Um, once I'd finished the manuscript, I I got an agent, um, and you know went out on submission. Um, but he ended up um, getting another job uh, shortly shortly after we got started. So I was I no longer had rep- representation. Was sitting there going, oh, you know. 
I can keep querying for a while and, you know, see what happens. But by that point, it was almost a year after the campaign had ended. And I was like, well, I've, you know, if it was just me on my own, I'd keep querying and keep querying. But I've, I've got all these backers who are waiting for this. So um, at that point, I decided to, to self-publish. Also, you, you actually, if I'm getting this right, then you, you were kind of wanting a big publisher. So you, you, mm-hmm. the Kickstarter was a success. But, yeah. So what, what did you give for for? Or pledges and if you weren't going to give the book out you know if you wanted to kind of wait for a, a major publisher right um it was let me think what my I think my my sort of base level thing was I I did little video updates for people that you know it was sort of like you know only guys you guys have access to this so I was making these little videos through the process of um of writing it so they could kind of come along with me while I was while I was working on it um I sent out um everybody who who backed got um an ebook copy of it um I figured at that you know I figured that even if I was gonna go traditional they probably wouldn't mind too much I mean we're talking 50 people here it wasn't like you know 500 people a thousand people are sending copies out to I was like well I, I don't think a publisher is going to mind me sending 50 copies of this out. Um, what else did I send? I sent um, little handmade cards with, uh, you know, schematic of the ship drawn on it. Um, one of the one of the higher level ones was um, I would name a character in the book after you. So a few of the names in there are, are names of my backers. Um, so it was it was pretty basic stuff. Um, you know, I in hindsight, none of it was particularly tangible. You know, none of it was you know, here's the book. I did promise, you know, once it gets out there, um, you know, I'll send signed copies to people of a particular level, but um, there wasn't, you know, a set time frame on it. I was actually very surprised that people were as generous as they were um, going out there and saying, hey, I'm not sure this is going to work. I mean, you've kind of answered this, the question there, because I was going to say, have you got, you know, before Kickstarter, did you have a big following? Do you mean, so it or how did you get your name out for Kickstarter? You know, if you like to say, in the end, you just got 50 backers, you know, mm-hmm. but that got you over the kind of, that, that, that deadline, that kind of goal. Yeah. So uh, how did, did you have a big, have you got a big following, you know, where people are looking at your work on a regular basis? I wouldn't say I've got a big following. Um, you know, I, I do have some people who read my stuff, I would, I would say regularly. At the time, I was still writing for the Mary Sue. I was there um I was doing weekly video game reviews there, and I think that's where most of my backers were coming from. Um, so, so most of them were people who had, you know, seen my work floating around the internet before. Um, but I was surprised there were some people who came in who I had never encountered, who had never seen my work, um, who just were like, hey, you know, I saw this floating around. It sounds like something I'd like to read. And, and that kind of blew my mind <laughs> a little bit. It was a surprise. So how how did the the big publisher come in then? How did they come in? Because I'm just curious, you know, like you've you've done your book, and mm-hmm. you know, it, it's like say it's been given out there. Were they a bit kind of suspect of that deal happening, or is that quite? Do they want that kind of publicity anyways? Um, that happened totally separately. Um, so I I, I self published um July of 2014, and I figured that was it. I you know I. I I'd done what I said I was going to do. I finished it. There was a book and I was like, okay, I'm, you know, I will move on and go do other things. And, um, I ended up going to uh, Worldcon in London that year. Um, and I went to a party where I met, um, Jared Sheeran and Ann Perry of, of Porno Kitsch and they were up for the Hugo that year. And, um, 
at the time I, I was I was still writing for the Mary Sue. So this party was a um, it was an informal gathering of people who write stuff on the internet. So we were all in there in that context of being bloggers and journalists and and whatnot. So um, I met them and we hit it off. I didn't mention a thing about my book because I'm amazing at self promotion, um, <laughs> and, uh, and that was it. You know, I was just like, okay, cool. You know, I, I had a beer with these people and 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 that was nice. Um, and then. Two or three months later, I hear from Jared, who discovered with you know no from with no help from me that i that I'd written a book um and he he liked it a lot and uh you know he wrote it up on on porno kitchen on tour and I was like oh that's that's kind of nice like you know it's it, people are still reading this thing that's that's nice to know um and then I, I am assuming he's he's the one who put a bug in in Anne's ear about it. She contacted me this this past January and asked me if I was interested in traditional publishing, and I was like, uh, yes. And so that so that was that. Um, it was a complete surprise. What's it? I mean, I'm guessing you might not know figures or anything, but has it? How is you know life of this book? Is it? Is it? Is it a way? You know, it got a life its own. Is it making cracking sales? I, I would, it is selling well. Um, I don't know, like, you know, numbers off the top of my head, but I, I do know from the last, um, the last information I was given, I mean, it, it is, it is doing pretty well and it's doing better than it, than it was doing, um, as self-published, which is again, not a surprise. I'm not particularly great at, at the marketing side of things. So it is, uh, it is nice having <laughs> someone a little more skilled, um, helping me out with that. What did you think of the the audio? Because that's how I'm actually listening to it at the moment. What do you think of the audio when someone else takes your you know your characters and and uses their voice and creates really their own intake you know like persona of them? What what did you think of that audio? Uh, oh, I think it's fantastic. Um, it's it's so strange, but also in a really wonderful way. Hearing somebody read my own words back to me, um, and and hearing. Um, you know the their own ideas and own inflections that go into it. Um, I guess maybe it's not as as weird as it might be for some. My background's in theater, so I'm I'm pretty accustomed to you know uh, you know you you write a scene and and people play it and it takes on a life of their own. But um, I I'm really happy with the audiobook. I think it's fantastic. You know, Becky, about a year ago, I spoke to Andy Weir, you know what I mean? And like you say, yeah. he kind of, you know, wrote this book, no one touched it, then he got it, then he got it. You know, you did this kickstart and now the book publishers come. Has there been any stirrings about a kind of a film deal or anything like that? Or is is there anything planned, something else so we can look forward to about it? Uh, not that I know of. <laughs> It'd be fantastic, but um, no, I haven't. I haven't heard anything along those lines yet. So, the publisher then have have they offered you and like another? Deal? Are you writing another book at the moment, or uh, I am writing another book at the moment. Uh, it's a companion novel to The Long Way, so it's not a direct sequel, but it will be um, focusing on a couple characters we've seen in this one so far. Since you haven't finished it, I won't say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but uh, it'll be, it, it basically starts um, late in the long way and, and sort of branches off from there. So is it like through a, a traditional book publisher as well? Have they kind of signed up for a contract with you there? So uh, Yes, I'll be with Hotter for my right, next book right. as well. So things are going really well then, Becky. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> I, I can't complain. Is there any, uh, what's, what's the pressure like now then to kind of, to make does it 
is there any kind of pressure to write this second one? Because like I see, I, I spoke to Andy Weir and he says he didn't know what the magic was when he did this Martian. Do you know what I mean? He, mm-hmm. he doesn't know if he's still got it. He doesn't know, you know, he's writing this second novel and he just wrote the book. You know, what's it yeah. like for you? I, I, I think he and I probably have a similar <laughs> experience. Um, it's a very different process this time around. You know, I had the luxury of, um, you know, sort of hemming and hawing for 10 years and, and all that, you know, the, the Kickstarter did give me a little bit of pressure because it was like, all right, I've got people waiting for it now. And, you know, I promised them certain things by certain points of time, but this is, this is a whole different ballgame. This is, um, you know, I have to have manuscript done by, you know, this date and um, that's good and bad. You know, it's, um, it's a, it's a very different kind of challenge. I, you know, before it, it was sort of more languid and free flowing and I had a, a little bit more wiggle room and uh, certainly less pressure. But um, the, the one thing I do have this time around is, you know, I've got my editor um, who's fantastic and, uh, you know, I, I have people to help me now with it. You know, I'm not just bootstrapping it on my own and that, that is um, a remarkable help. And also just, it, you know, it gives you confidence knowing somebody wants to see a second one. Um, and that's that's a big help as well. So this is the day job now, is it? Uh, no, actually, I have I have a, a day job. Day job. Um, I uh, I'm a, a technical writer for a software company, um, so I do uh, support documentation. It's not interesting at all, but it, <laughs> <laughs> it pays the bills. Um, so I I do that during the day, and then I I write in the evenings, and uh, usually spend a Saturday sort of polishing and stitching things together. Well, Becky, this listen, like I say, I'm just loving this book. You know, it's one of them ones where characters for me has always been a kind of like a crux. You know what I mean? The kind of book kind of holds up or it falls, you know, for, for characters. And like I, I said at the beginning, you know, to have like quirky characters, you know, sometimes it's hard to kind of realize them. Do you know what I mean? But you mm-hmm. seem to have just like caught them just, you know, and, <laughs> and even have like, like quirky alien things, you know, like one of them's like... It was just nice to, it was molten, you know, I, I forget what the, the, mm-hmm. the creature's name was, where she was molten and itchy and, you know, it was just like a kind oh, of, yeah. you know, like a, a normal part of life and she was grumpy and moody and you can totally relate, you know what I mean, the kind of yeah. what, what they're going through and what, and that's quite, it's, for me, it's it's to try and find those books, you know, it's, it's hard to find, you know, so, listen, well done, do you know what I mean, like I say, good luck on the second one, do you know what I mean, when, when can we see this coming out? Um, I've. I believe uh, later next year is the the intended plan, but I got to finish it first. So. Yes, <laughs> so enough enough talking. Well, Becky, yes. listen, it's been it's been lovely. You know, thank you so much for coming on. And you see, it's a cracking little book there. Do you know what I mean? Just a nice book that kind of just opens up a little kind of world, and you can just view in, you know, and, and watch and listen to the people. So well done. Thank you very much. It's uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you. There you go. I'll put a link on to Becky's site. Please pop over there. Like I say, this is making all the kind of the waves in the kind of the, the online. Do you know what I mean? The great stuff, you know, great first outing for a, a book. You know, I'm saying it as if like, kind of, I write books and honestly it is. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, it's just elements of that book just kind of lifted above others. Do you know what I mean? It's just like a great simple idea, but fantastic, put together fantastic, great story. Well done, Becky. And, you know, Hope all goes well for you in your kind of writing career. So, little flash fiction that I got to play 
last week. Alex, please forgive me. Alex Farchman's wrote this great little story. Ravages of Time, which was originally published in Nature magazine. Again, it's narrated by the good, our good friend, long time, long, long time narrator, Mark Nelson. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Ravages of Time by Alex Schwarzman. Ravages of Time by Alex Schwarzman. Jake Turner sat behind his desk, eyes closed letting the muted sounds of music and laughter that emanated from the street wash over him. Outside, people were celebrating Ship Week. The government had declared a planet-wide holiday, and everyone was having a good time, except for a handful of unfortunate souls stuck in their jobs. After all, Ship Week only happened once every 45 years. Turner volunteered to work through the holiday, and his superiors— desperate for manpower, approved his request to cancel medical leave and come back to work. A light chime announced his next appointment, forcing him out of his reverie. The medication he took earlier was beginning to wear off, and small pings of pain were tingling deep within his bones. The door opened to admit a middle-aged woman dressed in a style that was decades out of fashion. Mrs. Grobinski, he rose to greet her. I'm Security Chief Turner. Anna Grobinski smiled meekly and shook his hand. Please sit. Turner stared at the off-worlder. I understand that there was an incident involving your son during the previous ship week. He was left behind? The ship shuttle between the inhabited star systems, delivering everything from medical advances to films, books, music, and gossip from the other planets— it also carried migrants, people looking for a fresh start on another world. Those traveling to planets further along on the ship's route welcomed the opportunity to spend a week exploring an exotic new world. It was an accident, her voice trembled. By the time anyone realized Julek wasn't on one of the shuttles, it was too late. The captain wouldn't delay departure. She trailed off, her eyes filling with tears. I'm very sorry, Turner said, keeping his voice even. I realize that it's only been a few months for you since you lost him, but for your son, half a century has passed. He's older than you now. Grabinski nodded, blotting under her eyes with a handkerchief. It says here, Turner pointed at his screen, that you refused to disembark at Astor Prime and remained on board while the ship made its rounds and returned to our star system. You understand about the time dilation that your son would be fifty-nine now, if he is still alive at all. So why have you come back? I had to know, she said. Can you imagine being completely alone when you're only fourteen? He must have been so scared. I had to know that he is all right— know that he made a life for himself, that he forgives me. The tears were beginning to well up again. Turner tensed up. This was going to be the hard part. The pain in his bones was really flaring up now. He welcomed it, a fitting punishment for what he had to do. That is why we're here, said Turner. I have located Julek and can assure you that he has done well for himself. He was adopted by a nice family, grew up, and started a family of his own. 
You're a great-grandmother, Mrs. Grobinski. She exhaled, processing the news. When can I see him? she asked eagerly. I'm sorry to say that he chose not to meet with you in person, said Turner. He felt that seeing him as an older man would be much too painful for you. Why, you probably wouldn't even recognize him. Grobinski bit her lip hard. Do you have children, Mr. Turner? He nodded. Then you should understand. You'd always recognize them, no matter the ravages of time. Always. There's a bond. I'm only passing along his wishes, said Turner. He said you should continue on to Astor Prime. Make a new life for yourself there, like you always wanted to. It would make him happy to know that you'd moved on with your life. Turner rose from his chair to indicate that their appointment was at an end. There were so many other things to do, so many issues to deal with during ship week. Grobinski made no move to leave. She remained seated in his office, staring at an undecorated wall with a forlorn expression on her face. "'Is there any message you'd like me to pass along?' Turner prodded. "'A letter, perhaps?' Forward it to my office, and I'll make certain your son receives it. No letter, Grobinski finally said. But would you give him this? She retrieved an antique pocket watch from her purse. It was his father's. The lid was broken off, and Julek always carried it with him as a good luck charm. I'll pass it along, Turner promised. When she was gone... Turner brought up the photos of his own family on his monitor. There was his wife, his children, and grandchildren, his adopted parents, and his younger stepbrother, who couldn't pronounce his name right as a three-year-old, and who was the first to begin calling him Jake. Turner opened his desk drawer and took out the golden pocket watch lid he kept there next to the cancer pills. He pressed it to the watch and held the two pieces together for a long time willing them to be whole. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Alex. Alex, thank you so much. Like I say, apologies for missing it last week. But honestly, just some great writing coming from your your mind and your creative genius. Thank you so much for sharing it with Starship's Over. So, what, what's been happening? Well, yes, the newsletter, it's kicking off. Second one went out, and listen, you know, you kind of put newsletter, well, I'm good at writing, you know what I mean? I kind of had to have, you know, create the helpers there, but so many, you know, you put the newsletter out, so many replies are coming back straight away. Bang! Do you know what I mean? I'm not joking. Probably within that first hour, 20 emails back, do you know what I mean? You know, I'm answering the competition because we had a little competition there, but just like seeing a hello, great, great newsletter. That's never happened before. Maybe I should just take the back seat, you know what I mean? Take the back seat a few things. So big thank you to Craig, the kind of who's helping with the newsletter. You know what I mean? What we want to do is kind of make it like a little, little string, you know, a little, little bow, is that right? To the kind of the arsenal of Starship. So, and give it like, you know, not just kind of publicity, not just making anything, just make it something worthwhile to read, you know what I mean? We're kind of throwing in lots of little things as well as some like kind of big reviews in there as well. So it's just like, it, it is almost like a little magazine to kind of just, you know, you're sitting on the on the, the met, metro, the tram or whatever, going to work, and you just kind of, 
get lost in a little bit more science fiction, just kind of fill your deal with a bit of that, a bit more of that, and then kind of sort of the kind of realities of, of what's out there now. So, yeah, you know, pop over to the website and join up, you know, the news like that. You know, there is some remarkable stuff in there, and a big thank you to Craig as well, who's kind of helping, who's doing most of the lifting. Big thank you, Craig. So... Main fiction, it is The Wreck of the Mars by none other than David D. Levine, Hugo winning author. Man, like I say, this story was first published in Old Mars, edited by George R. Martin and Gardner Does Was. I'll give you a little heads up. David's been so kind, kind of, he's let us have stories before in the past, and just a classic science fiction writer, just, you know, in a, in a fantastic science fiction writer, in fact. David D. Levine is the multi-award-winning author of the Regency Interplanetary Airship Adventure novel Arabella of Mars, toured 2016, and more than 50 science fiction and fantasy stories. His story, Ticket, 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 won the 2006 Hugo Award for Best Short Story, Historian Nucleon won the James White Award and has been shortlisted for awards including the Hugo, Nebula, Campbell, Sturgeon and Locus. His stories have appeared in Asimov, Analog, Fantasy and Science Fiction, Realms of Fantasy and numerous anthologies and websites and multiple years best anthologies as well as his collection Space Magic from Wheatland Press which won the Endeavour Award for Best Science Fiction or Fantasy Book by Pacific Northwest writer. Listen, man, this guy's at the top of his game. Do you know what I mean? Get some of his work. David's just amazing. David is also a contributor to George R. Martin's best-selling Shared World series, Wild Cards. He is also a member of the Bookview Cafe, a writer-owned publishing cooperative and Oregon Science Fiction Convention Incorporated, a non-profit organization which produces Oricon and other SF conventions. He is narrated podcasts for Escape Pod, Podcastle and Starship Sova and the audiobook of Space Magic. And his video prediction, Dr. Talon's Letter to the Editor, was a finalist for the Parsec Award. In 2010, he spent two weeks at the Mars Desert Research Station, a simulated Mars base in the Utah Desert. Wow, man! <laughs> you see what writing science fiction can do, man. Damn, oh, that must be fantastic. David lives under a, you know, sorry, in a hundred-year-old bungalow in Portland. A hundred, David, man, a hundred-year-old, man, are we, man? Come over to the UK, man. Freaking ancient over here. Oregon with his wife, Katie. His website can be found at daviddlevine.com. Like I say, truly an awesome writer, this. And it is actually narrated as well by David as well. You know, he's got the chops to do the narration as well. So, David, big, big, big thank you. So... The Starship Sova is very proud to present The Wreck of the Mars Adventure by David D. Levine William Kidd knelt upon the cold stone floor in the complete blackness of the condemned hold in Newgate Prison. Heavy iron shackles lay loose upon wrists and ankles grown far thinner than when they'd first been fitted, the skin torn and scabrous from too long acquaintance with the cold rough metal. Chains rattled as he shifted into a somewhat less uncomfortable position. All of these were familiar and could be ignored, but the commotion in the hall beyond his locked door was new and a terrible distraction. No doubt some of the other prisoners were celebrating the imminent demise of their most famous neighbor. "'Keep quiet out there!' he cried, or tried to. "'Leave a condemned man to make peace with his lord!' There was no possibility the revelers could have heard Kid. 
His Dundee brogue, once powerful enough to carry across a hundred yards of open ocean in the midst of a gale, was now reduced to little more than a whisper. Yet, almost at once, the babble of voices dropped away to nothing. A moment later came the rattle of keys in the lock. This, too, was unexpected. For any one at all to enter Kidd's cell was a rarity, by order of the Admiralty Board and the House of Commons. A visit in the middle of the night was unprecedented, and on the very eve of his execution, Kidd levered himself up to a sitting posture, chains clanking as he settled back on his haunches. Weary from months of imprisonment, despondent from years of rejection, disappointment, and defeat, he could think of no reason for such an untimely visit other than more bad news. Perhaps the House had decided to advance his execution to the small hours of the morning for some political reason, or perhaps they intended to shave his head or perform some other indignity before marching him to the gibbet. He'd long given up any thought of comprehending the constant fickle changes of parliamentary whim. Whatever the news, Kidd meant to take it as a man should. Exerting himself to his utmost, he strained to rise to his feet, but he had barely struggled up to one knee when the door clashed open. The dim, flickering light of torches blinded him. He tried and failed to raise an arm to shield his eyes. But before he could do so, two burly keepers entered and pinned his arms behind him. New irons clasped him at elbow and wrist, tight and hard and cold, and new chains ran clattering down to ring-bolts fixed in the stone floor. The guards forced Kid to his knees, and in a moment he was trussed immovably in place. A hand gripped the back of his head, forcing his gaze to the floor. Was he to be beheaded here in his cell? "'Prison is secured, my lord.' The voice belonged to one of the prison's harshest and most brutal wardens. What could reduce this man to stammering servility? "'Leave us,' a cold, brusque voice, one used to immediate compliance. It had an accent Kid couldn't place. "'Dutch?' "'My lord?' "'Leave us alone.' The warden gulped audibly. "'Yes, my lord,' he whispered. The hand released Kid's head, and two sets of feet shuffled out of the cell. A moment later the door creaked closed, shutting more quietly than Kid would have thought possible. A single torch remained, and the sound of one man breathing. Kid raised his head. The stranger was tall, over six feet, and the dark cloak that covered him from head to toe could not disguise his imperious bearing. He held an embroidered handkerchief to his nose, no doubt soaked in vinegar to combat the prison's stench. "'To what do I owe the privilege, my lord?' Kid rasped, masking his terror with ironic courtesy. The man pushed back his hood. "'Surely an investor can pay a visit to his client?' For a moment Kid failed to recognize the face, with its proud black eyes and its hard, humped beak of a nose. Then he gasped and ducked his head. Though they'd never before met in person, he'd seen that face in profile on a thousand coins. "'Your Majesty,' he whispered, though cold anger burned beneath his ribs. William the Third, King of England and Ireland, also William the Second of Scotland, placed the vinegar-soaked cloth again beneath his nose. "'My time here is short,' he said, his voice muffled. Even men as deeply stupid as my beloved advisers cannot be counted upon to miss my absence for long, so I must come directly to the point. He drew the cloth aside, his dark eyes fixing kids. I am here to offer you a pardon. At first kid could form no reply. Surely this was only a dream, or a cruel jape intended only to deepen his suffering. 
Hope warred with anger and disbelief in his breast. "'Your Majesty?' he managed. "'You heard me,' the king snapped. "'I will spare your filthy piratical neck from the noose my parliament has woven for you from your own ill-considered words.' Kid matched the king's level stare. "'I but spoke the truth. "'The truth is nothing against politics, "'and were it not for politics "'I'd never find myself here in this stinking rat-hole with you,' "'the king sighed. "'You are troublesome, kid. "'You and I both know you are no pirate, "'but my advisers would see you swing "'for the damage you've done your backer's reputation. "'And with your impetuous bravado and your damned honesty, "'you've made so many enemies "'I could never defend you in public "'without losing the whole Whig party.' But for all your faults, and for all the stories your enemies have spread about you, you're too good a captain to waste on the gibbet. So, again, I have come to offer you a pardon. A small, strange smile played about his lips. But if you accept this pardon, you will be required to undertake a certain charge for me. When you hear the charge and the conditions, you may wish to decline this offer of clemency." "'What charge and conditions?' Kid snarled through gritted teeth. "'Could make a man esteem the hangman's noose above a king's pardon.' Infuriatingly, the smile broadened. "'I desire that you plan, outfit, equip, crew, and carry out an expedition to the planet Mars.' Rage flared in Kid at the king's callous jest, but he held his tongue. He did not even allow the contempt he felt to show on his face." This prudence was a new thing for Kidd. Even one year ago, freshly detained on false and libelous charges, he would have railed and spat and fought at such a ridiculous slight. But capricious imprisonment had taught him caution. He paused and gave due consideration to the words of a king, a king not known for levity or insanity. This was a new century, a time of exploration and discovery and wonders, with the new world now nearly as well-mapped as the old, men were setting out in search of even newer worlds. Balloons were rising from all the capitals of Europe, and after Dampier's successful circumnavigation of the moon, a journey to Mars, though outlandish, was not entirely inconceivable. "'I've heard the charge,' Kidd said, swallowing his anger. "'And the conditions?' "'Primus,' the king said, holding up one finger." you may not disclose the terms of the pardon to any man upon penalty of death. Secundus, you will be placed under the command of the physiologist John Sexton. You will obey his orders, serve him faithfully, and remain within one hundred feet of him at all times until the successful completion of the expedition under pain of death. Tertius, you will be held personally responsible for the safety of said Sexton, should any harm whatsoever befall him, you will suffer death. He put down the hand with its three extended fingers and crossed his arms on his chest. On the other hand, if you should somehow manage to return to London with your own head and sextons intact, you would have the gratitude of a king, perhaps even a baronetship. Kidd considered the king's words, considered them most seriously. He knelt in chains, in the darkest cell of the worst prison in England, faced with a choice between an impossible task, an insane expedition from the attempt of which neither he nor any man he might recruit would be likely to return, and certain death upon the morrow. And he began to laugh. 
Rough, hacking chuckles burst from a throat left parched and ruined by a year of prison food, prison water, prison air. The king took a step back, the white cloth held tight against his nose, as though he feared Kid might somehow burst his manacles and attack the royal person. "'I accept the pardon, your majesty,' Kid gasped when the fate had passed. "'I never could pass up a challenge.' Kid strolled down Salisbury Court, heading for an appointment with Yale, the chandler whom he had engaged for water, cordage, and comestibles. Five weeks out of prison, it was still a wonder to walk unencumbered, to move for more than ten feet without encountering a wall, to breathe air untainted by the exudations of a thousand condemned prisoners. Sexton, the physiologist, walked with him. A lean, pale-eyed man of twenty-eight, half Kid's age, he was not only a member of the Royal Society and a lecturer at Gresham College, but had also invented a novel method for projecting the surface of the spherical earth onto a flat paper map, and discovered two new species of beetle. His theories on interplanetary shipcraft and navigation were, apparently, very highly regarded by his philosophic peers. And for all his brains, he had the common sense of a turtle dove. Though Kid's strength was improving, he still walked with a stick. Despite this handicap, he still made better speed than Sexton, who paused periodically to converse with strangers, peer curiously at unusual bits of stonework, and scribble notes in a small notebook. The man was like a jackdaw, always darting hither and yon, his attention drawn to any shiny object, and easily startled into flight. Kidd had originally thought that the secret terms of the king's pardon compelled him to remain close to Sexton to prevent him, Kidd, from escaping. He now believed that the real reason for this requirement was so that Kidd could protect Sexton from being run down by a coach, falling into a canal, or simply forgetting to breathe. "'Please, Dr. Sexton,' Kidd called over his shoulder. "'We are already late, and Mr. Yale is a busy man.' "'Just a moment, Mr. Kidd,' Sexton replied, stooping to inspect a weed that grew in the crack between two foundation stones of the building they were passing. "'Captain Kidd,' Kidd muttered under his breath. He no longer bothered correcting Sexton, but the omission still rankled, especially given how insistent Sexton was upon his own title of doctor. "'This is the ship,' said Edmonds, Kid's old shipmate. "'Aye,' Kid replied. The grizzled old sailor stood silent for a long time, casting a practiced eye on the little ship as she bobbed in the Thames. Edmonds had responded eagerly enough to Kid's call for a quartermaster, They'd served together upon the St. Rose, and Kidd would trust him with his life. "'This'd be the strangest ship I've e'er served upon,' Edmund said at last. To that assertion, Kidd merely nodded. "'I'll not argue with that.' The ship was tiny, barely seventy feet from stem to stern, and would carry a crew of only sixty men. But not only was she small, she seemed spindly. Everything possible had been done to lighten her weight— Bulkheads were screens woven from rattan rather than solid wooden panels. Carved rails had been replaced by simple ropes, and canvas sheeting took the place of hatch covers, and Kid knew of many other changes invisible to the eye, such as the deck planks planed down to half their usual thickness. "'But sweeps?' Edmonds asked, incredulous, pointing to the row of oarlocks on either side. "'In this day and age?' Kid set his chin. "'I'd not sail without them.' Wind and waves cannot be trusted, but a man at an oar can always be counted on to pull a ship out of trouble. Sweeps have saved my skin more than once. He did not mention that the sweeps that would be fitted to those oarlocks were made to push air, not water. Sexton had designed them to kid specifications, 
but Kidd could but hope that they would work as well as Sexton promised, along with every one of the thousand untried theoretical pieces that made up the strange little ship. Edmonds left off his critical inspection of the ship and turned to Kidd with a questioning eye. "'Do you think she'll really swim?' Kidd nodded. "'She's a strange one, all right. But there's a reason for it, and if you'll sign on with me, you'll learn what it is.' "'Aye, but do you trust her?' There came a long, considering pause then. It didn't really matter what Kidd thought. He was bound by the terms of his pardon to sail with Sexton no matter the circumstances, and not to reveal the reason. But still he felt he owed his old shipmate an honest answer. Though many of Sexton's designs seemed completely daft at first, the man had an enormous brain, and where Kidd could follow his logic it seemed unassailable and Kidd himself had supervised the ship's construction and provisioning, using the best men and materials the king's money could buy. If he could assemble a whole crew as good as Edmund's... "'I trust her well enough to sail in her myself,' Kidd said, "'and it'll be a long, long journey.' "'In miles, at least,' he added silently, though Sexton theorized it would take but two months, all told. There were no plans to land upon Mars, merely to survey it for a later expedition.' Edmonds pursed his lips for a long moment. Then, with a firm nod of his chin, he stuck out his hand. If she's good enough for Captain Kidd, she's good enough for me. With genuine pleasure, Kidd took Edmonds' hand and shook it. Welcome aboard, Mr. Edmonds. Welcome aboard the Mars Adventure. Kidd shielded his eyes from the rising sun, trying to ignore the babble of the crowd on the wharf as he inspected the ship's bizarre rigging. He had warned the king that rumors would begin to spread once the crew was hired, and indeed, in the last few weeks, the press of the public for more information on the strange ship, with her secret mission and her infamous captain, had become intense. But Kidd kept a tight rein on his men, and kept Sexton busy with his draughts and charts, so that little real news had gotten out. But when they'd begun to inflate the balloons after sunset last night, word had traveled fast, and the rabble had begun to gather almost immediately. Soon everyone would know the secret of the Mars adventure. Nine balloons bobbed and swayed above the little ship, nine taut white globes of fine china silk filled with coal-warmed air, glowing like enormous pearls in the light of the rising sun. Already the ship rode impossibly high in the water, and the tug of the Thames on her keel combined with the action of the breeze on her balloons to give her a sick, disturbing motion unlike anything Kidd had ever experienced before. Sexton had assured Kidd that, once airborne, the ride would be smooth. "'Nate fast, let's stay there!' Kidd called, pointing. The bosun repeated his order, and two of the men scrambled up the great purse of netting that restrained the balloons to repair the flaw Kidd had spotted. Stays was what Kidd and the men called the great ropes that held the balloons to the ship, though they were no true stays at all. So much was new and unprecedented in this ship that they'd been forced to stretch existing sailing language to cover it all. It was better than the Latin that Sexton insisted on using. Sexton appeared at Kidd's elbow. "'Are we nearly ready to depart?' he said, his eyes darting about. "'We must rise with the sun, or the lift will be insufficient.' "'Very nearly,' Kidd replied, turning his attention to the wharf. "'We only await—' "'Ah, there he is.' The crowd parted like the Red Sea before a surging retinue of colorful and bewigged gentlemen, in the midst of which the king strode like Moses.' As word spread through the crowd, heads bowed in rings, like ripples from a dropped stone. "'Good morrow to you, my subjects,' the king called, once the clamor of his arrival had subsided. "'I'll bring you good news. 
On this most momentous day, a new era of exploration and discovery dawns for England. Today, my philosopher John Sexton, together with a brave crew of hand-picked men, set sail on a most extraordinary voyage, an expedition to the planet Mars. Pandemonium. Cheers, gawps of astonishment, and hoots of derision greeted the king's announcement. Some of the most amazed reactions came from the crew, many of whom had greeted Kidd's revelation of the ship's destination with knowing winks and the assumption that the real purpose of the voyage would be disclosed later. For his own part, Kidd, bristling at his own dismissal as merely part of Sexton's crew, whispered a few commands to his boatswain. "'Aye, sir,' the boatswain replied, and scurried off to pass the word to the rest of the men. Kidd understood that the king might wish to distance himself from a notorious, though pardoned, pirate, but he didn't have to like it, and he wasn't going to let the slight go unpunished. If the king wanted a momentous day, he would have one. On the wharf, the king blathered on and on, while Sexton peered through his fingers at the ever-rising sun. "'We're losing too much time,' he whispered to Kidd. "'Patience,' Kidd replied. Just then the boatswain returned. "'All's ready,' he murmured in Kidd's ear. Kidd grinned. "'On my signal.' "'This is a marvelous day for England,' the king declaimed. And for the glorious house of Orange Nassau, that was more than enough royal self-aggrandizement for Kidd. He turned and bellowed, Cast off! Away ballast! In one coordinated motion, sailors in the four corners of the ship slipped the mooring lines that held the ship down. A moment later came a rushing rumble from below decks as other men opened the valves that let the ship's ballast, thousands of gallons of Thames water rather than the usual stones, run out to rejoin the river. With a great lunge that sent Kid's stomach rushing toward his boots, Mars' adventure sprang into the sky. The crowd's reaction made its previous outburst seem a paltry whisper. Great cries of astonishment and delight leapt from a thousand throats. A storm of hats soared into the air. Coats and shirts waved like banners. And in the midst of this uproar, the king's face glared up at Kid with mingled fury and admiration. Kid raised his hat in salute. "'See you in two months, Billy boy,' he muttered under his breath, an enormous smile pasted on his face. "'You conniving bastard!' Kidd stood at the rope, which on any ordinary ship would be the taffrail, his stomach troubled. All of his seafaring instincts told him the ship was completely becalmed. Floating beneath her balloons, she drifted along with the wind, so no breath of breeze freshened the deck. Sexton, with his instruments, assured Kidd that they were making good progress, but still he worried. An unimaginable distance below, the whole great globe of the earth lay spread out to his sight. A shiny ball of glass swirled in blue and white suspended in the blue of the sky. He could span the width of the world with two hands held out at arm's length, thumb to thumb and fingers spread. The drop was now so great that the view had passed from terrifying interesting. Sexton stood nearby, peering upward through his telescope, and Kidd moved closer to him. "'Dr. Sexton,' he said, speaking low so that none of the other quarter-deck crew might hear, "'I must confess myself uneasy. I've sailed through storms, battled pirates, faced death by hanging, but this is the first time in my whole career I've felt such a tremulous sensation in my gut. My head is light as well, my feet unsteady.' And furthermore, the quartermaster has told me he feels the same. Could this be some disease of the upper atmosphere? Sexton snapped the telescope closed. It is nothing more than the reduction of gravitational attraction. 
With all his learning, Sexton sometimes lapsed into Latin without realizing he had done so. "'What is the treatment?' Kidd asked. "'Bleeding? An emetic?' At that, Sexton laughed. <laughs> "'Fear not. It is no disease, but a natural consequence of our distance from the earth. This phenomenon was predicted by Newton and confirmed by Halley on his first attempt to reach the moon. As we travel further from the mother sphere, the attraction of her gravity, in layman's terms, our weight, will grow less and less.' Already we weigh only three-quarters as much as we would at home. He bounced on his toes, and Kid noticed the man's wig bounding gently atop his head. Kid, too, bounced on his toes, and was astonished to find the small effort propelled him several inches into the air. Before the day is out, Sexton continued, we will pass out of the Earth's domain and into the interplanetary atmosphere. There we will exist in a state of free descent, and will feel ourselves to have no weight at all. That is the point at which we will be able to retire the balloons and continue with sails alone. No matter how many times Sexton had explained this phenomenon, Kent had never quite been able to comprehend it. But now, with his thirteen stone pressing so lightly against his feet, he felt he was beginning to understand. Again he hopped lightly into the air, feeling himself float giddily for a moment before his boots struck the deck. A sea, he said. While Kidd had been bouncing, Sexton had resumed his telescopic observations. "'Of course,' he said, peering upward through the instrument, "'we must first traverse the boundary between the planetary atmosphere, which rotates along with the Earth, and the interplanetary atmosphere, which orbits the Sun,' he collapsed the telescope. "'There may be a bit of turbulence.' "'You call this a bit of turbulence?' Kidd shouted in Sexton's ear. The two men clung for their lives to the whip-staff that controlled the ship's great sail-like rudder. Not only did it require the full extent of the two men's strength to keep the ship on course through the air, but only by clinging to the staff could they be certain they would not be blown overboard to vanish immediately into the vastness of the air. Two of the crew had been lost before Kidd had ordered the men to tie themselves to the masts. The ship tumbled dizzily through the air, lashed by torrential rains, tossed this way and that by capricious winds that blew with hurricane force, not just from north, south, east, and west, but also above and below. Even Kidd, who'd survived a storm in the Strait of Bab el-Mandeb without the least sickness, had sent his supper overboard. "'I had no idea!' Sexton yelled back. "'Neither Halley nor Dampier ever encountered the like!' "'Sheet home the t'gallants, damn ye!' Kidd cried to his men. But all Kidd's sea-craft was of no avail. No matter how he set the sails, the ship only reeled and veered like a drunken madman. Kidd had never in his life felt so disoriented. Storm clouds roiled in every direction, the compass spun crazily in its binnacle. Even the basic, eternal verities of up and down had been left behind. "'How do we escape this chaos?' he asked Sexton. "'Watch for a bit of blue sky and steer toward it!' But steering the ship with Sexton's air rudder was easier in Sexton's theories than it proved in practice, achieving little more than a dizzying spin, and shipping sweeps in this gale would most likely either snap the oar in two or fling the oarsman overboard." An eternity passed, an eternity in a sailor's hell of unending, omnipresent wind and lightning, before a patch of blue appeared ahead on the starboard side. But though Kidd and Sexton jammed the rudder hard alarboard and the men worked the sails with skill and alacrity, they achieved nothing but another wild tumble. "'God damn this weather!' Kidd cried. "'Do not take the Lord's name in vain,' Sexton responded. "'But trust in him, and he will provide!' And then he pointed. Another patch of clear blue air— no bigger than an outstretched hand, had opened off the starboard beam, and, just at that moment, the wind happened to be blowing from the larboard side, pressing the ship toward it. 
An inspiration seized Kid. Set the mainsail, he called. Brace sharp up on a larboard tack. The boatswain, who had lashed himself to the mizzenmast, stared at Kid as though he doubted his captain's sanity. At the beginning of the storm, following long-standing naval custom, they'd struck all the sails and the balloons, facing the storm with bare masts rather than risking the sails being torn away. Since then, they'd set only the bare minimum of sail to control the ship. But now, Kid was telling him to raise the largest sail and turn it so that it would catch as much wind as possible. Smartly now, Kid cried, reinforcing his command with a demand for rapid action. Aye, sir, the Mosin replied. He and the main top men unlashed themselves and crept cautiously with at least one hand clutching the shrouds at all times up the mainmast. Only the diligence, skill, and bravery of their decades of experience made it possible for them to unfurl the sail and sheet it home, the yard running fore and aft, so the wind from the larboard side caught the sail full on. No sooner was the sail set than it snapped open, filling with the rushing air. The frightening sound of tearing canvas could be heard even over the wind's roar, but the ship surged beneath Kid's feet, lurching directly sideways toward the patch of blue. At sea this sort of maneuver would be impossible, but with nothing but air beneath the keel the game had entirely changed. "'Set all sails!' Kid cried. "'Brace all sharp on a larboard tack! Smartly now!' This stratagem could only succeed if they managed to press on all sail while the favorable wind continued. The crew set to with a will, sheeting home one rain-lashed sail after another. With each new stretch of canvas the ship rushed faster toward the open air. The force of the gale on the crowd of sails also tumbled the ship to the side, heeling her so hard over to starboard that her keel pointed directly into the wind. Kid and Sexton clung hard to the whipstaff, but though the ship now lay entirely on her side, the earth's pull had grown so weak that no man fell overboard. The patch of blue, now above the mainmast, grew larger and larger. And then the ship rushed through it, tumbling up into blue and clear air. The storm fell away behind, a horrific ball of lightning-whipped black cloud. Thank God, Kid cried, for able seamen. Kid, Sexton, Edmonds, and the ship's carpenter floated in the air off the ship's starboard hull, each secured from drifting by a light line tied to an ankle. The storm lay three weeks behind them, but they'd passed within sight of many other such, great untidy knots of roiling cloud, and Kid and Sexton had argued the whole time over how best to prepare for the next that could not be avoided. The carpenter had chalked a large X on the hull, between the dried barnacles and shipworm holes. Is it be the spot, Captain? he said. If you're sure. Kid wasn't sure, not at all. He cast a baleful eye at Sexton. This is madness. To cut holes in our own hull? Sexton glared right back. It is the only way. For three weeks the ship had been subject to the whims of the interplanetary atmosphere, tossed here and there by every changing breeze, and tumbled every which way as it flew. Though they'd fastened down everything they could, the men still floated freely in the air, and the ship's unpredictable turns and tumbles had resulted in many injuries, and several men nearly lost overboard. Kidd had learned much about how to sail in this new world, but still the ship seemed to fight him at every turn. Sexton had proposed a new sail plan of radical novelty. The main and mizzen masts would be unshipped and remounted forward on the lower hull, sticking down and out to form a great equal-armed Y with the foremast. According to Sexton's theory, putting all sail forward in this way would cause the ship to present her stern to the prevailing wind, rather than constantly heeling over. Distributing the sails equally in the vertical plane, 
would give them control over the ship's direction and her orientation in the air. But no ship in history had ever had masts below the waterline. "'We'll have to saw the masts from the keelson,' Kid protested. "'She'll never be whole again!' Sexton patted the air placatingly. "'I promise this new design will balance the ship out,' he said, "'if you can but make the masts secure in their new locations.' Kidd and his men would have to work out an entirely new system of rigging to support the masts. But their spare cordage was limited, and it would have to work perfectly the first time. If the rigging proved inadequate to hold the sails against the pressure of wind, the remounted masts would tear the hull apart. He shook his head. I don't know if it can be done. Give me time, damn it! We can yet learn to sail her as she stands. No, we've bickered enough. Sexton crossed his arms on his chest and glared down his nose to where Kidd floated some feet closer to the hull. We must gain better control of the ship, and quickly, or come the next storm we'll wind up lost and tumbling, or broken to bits. Kidd strove to relax his clenched jaw. Is that an order? If I must. The two men held each other's gaze for a long, tense moment. Edmonds and the carpenter looked on, their eyes darting from the captain to the philosopher and back. Once Kidd had been captain of his own fate. Now he found himself subordinate to a scraggy, wispy-bearded schoolboy, and he rankled at the diminution. But still, Sexton's ideas had gotten them this far, and if they could but complete their mission, the legend of Kid the Voyager to Mars might eclipse the slanderous lie of Kid the Pirate. He bent down and looped the line from his ankle over his shoulders, clinching up the slack and leaning back to press his bare feet against the rough, barnacled hull. "'Give me the axe!' he said to the carpenter. Then he hauled off and began chopping through the X. If anyone was going to murder Kid's ship, it would be Kid himself. Mars shimmered in Kid's telescope, a great dull copper-colored sphere. Where the earth had gleamed like glass, the sun shining off her clouds and oceans and lakes, Mars seemed lusterless as dry, unpolished wood, a dead world. Snapping the telescope shut, Kid gazed at the approaching planet with his unaided eye. Mars's disk was already too big to cover with a thumb, and growing visibly day by day. It should have been an exciting time. The disaster had arrived imperceptibly, by stages. Mars' adventure had left London with food and water for three months, a month more than the longest possible round-trip voyage predicted by Sexton's theories. The outbound voyage had taken nearly eight weeks, longer than expected, but once they had refitted the masts and sorted out the working of the ship in air, Sexton's bizarre new sail plan worked beautifully. At the six-week mark, all hands had agreed to accept short rations and press on to Mars, expecting a quicker return trip. When they'd broached the first empty water cask, they'd thought it was just a fluke. But the second and the third dry cask began to raise alarms in Kid's mind. He and the quartermaster had gone into the hold and thumped every remaining barrel. Nearly one-third were dry. Even on half-rations, they'd surely die of thirst long before they reached London. "'Damn that Yale!' Kidd muttered, clenching the telescope in his hands as though it were the accursed Chandler's neck. But even more than Yale, Kidd cursed himself. Years hunting pirates, only to be betrayed and abandoned by his own backers, should have taught him better than to extend any trust beyond his own two hands." Suddenly Sexton's hand clapped down upon Kidd's shoulder, startling him out of his reverie. "'Do not curse the Chandler,' he said, entirely too brightly. "'Tis not his fault.' "'How so?' 
Kid replied, struggling to regain his composure. Either he cheated me, uh, that is, the king, or else he is incompetent. Sexton shook his head. I realized last night what the reason must be. Those casks were full when we loaded them, but they were built for earthly climbs. Have you not noticed how parched of moisture the atmosphere has become? Aye. Kid licked chapped lips with a tongue dry as old leather. The air had been growing steadily colder and drier as Mars drew near. The air's thirst first dries out the cask's wood, then draws the water out through the seams between the staves. On our next voyage, we can line the casks with wax or lead to prevent this evaporation. Next voyage? Kid laughed without amusement. There'll be no next voyage for us. He casked his eyes out over the empty cloudless air and the dead, dry planet below. The sea may be an inhospitable mistress, but at least she offers the occasional island with a spring or pond of fresh water. There are no islands in the air. And no islands, perhaps, but there are canals. Kid blinked. Canals? Uh, give me your glass. Sexton peered through Kid's telescope at Mars and handed it back, pointing. Uh, there, near the planet's limb. For a long time, Kid saw nothing. Then, wavery and blurry, a few thin, straight, silvery threads appeared, glinting in the reduced sunlight. Kid lowered the instrument from his eye. Mere mirages. Canals, Sexton insisted. And what could be in them but water? If the ship can but make landfall and rise from it, we might yet survive. Again, Kid licked his dry lips, considering. Then he turned to the bosun. Send word for the carpenter, he said. The ship will need some sort of legs if we're to land on sand. Mars now loomed above the bow, glowing red and huge as the dome of St. Peter's at sunset. The great north polar cap gleamed white and pristine atop the ruddy globe, but Sexton had rejected Edmund's idea of landing there to melt water from snow, fearing that the air of the polar regions might be so cold that their limited supply of coal could not heat it sufficiently to raise the ship again. Instead, they were aiming for an area at about 40 degrees north longitude, where several great canals converged. Sexton swore he'd seen through his telescope evidence of a city at that nexus. Kid's eyes, twice as old, could not confirm this. But, at least, the presence of multiple canals increased their chances of finding water. Assuming, that is, that those silvery threads were indeed canals, and did contain drinkable liquid water and not some unknown Martian substance, and also assuming that they could land where they intended and survive the landing. Even Sexton had no idea what conditions they might encounter on the fast-approaching Martian surface. The winds were now shifting hard and fast as the ship entered the zone of turbulence where the interplanetary atmosphere met Mars's own rotating sphere of air. But Kidd's crew was now seasoned in aerial seamanship, the ship's rigging well proven, and unlike at Earth, there seemed to be no storm clouds in the offing. The air here's too dry for storms, Sexton opined through lips as cracked as every other man's, or even clouds, for that matter. All they had to do now was to wait for a favorable wind, then raise sails to catch it. When that wind shifted or died, as they invariably did, they'd strike the sails and coast on in the same direction until encountering another favorable wind. The work was exhausting for the men, but using this technique they were making excellent time. Sexton estimated they'd be close enough to Mars to deploy the balloons in just a few days. Kid peered through his telescope, seeking the tiny, scudding bits of airborne flotsam whose motion he'd learned would predict a shift in the breeze. But suddenly a flock of silvery, fluttering shapes burst across his view. 
Sexton had given the creatures a Latin name that Kid could never recall. The men called them flying fish, though they resembled fish only superficially in shape and not at all in taste, and they did not so much fly as row through the air. But over the past weeks, Kid had learned that such a flock often rode the leading edge of a hard-blowing wind, which was exactly what Kid had been hoping for. "'Set royals into gallants!' he cried, and the crew leapt into action, many of them literally leaping twenty or thirty feet through the air to their stations. They'd become adept at maneuvering through the air, hands and feet propelling them swiftly from line to yard to sail in the absence of weight. Sexton insisted that the phenomenon should be called free descent, though there was no descending at all. Kidd worried what would happen to the men when they returned to earth, where a fall from a height could again kill them. Kidd hauled himself hand over hand along the rope taffrail from one side of the quarter-deck to the other, peering over the sides at the main and mizzen masts. But the crews of all three masts knew their business now, and within minutes the sails were sheeted home. A moment later the hard gust hit them. The whole ship shuddered at the impact, yard-arms rattling and masts groaning, and some of the men whooped as they bounced at the ends of their safety lines. Kidd and Edmonds leaned against the whipstaff, feet skidding on the deck as the air fought their attempts to turn the ship into the wind. But the rigging held, the oft-repaired sails stayed in one piece, and the ship shot forward, the planet growing with satisfying speed. A few minutes later, Kidd was startled by the approach of Sexton, who scrambled down the length of a safety line with a panicked expression on his face. Somewhere the man had lost his wig. "'Stop! Stop!' Sexton called over the rush of air. "'We're already well into the planetary atmosphere. I was a fool not to realize that Mars's gravity is less than Earth's. His atmosphere must be less dense and, and thus deeper.' "'I've no time for natural philosophy, doctor,' Kidd shouted back. "'You don't understand, Captain. We're beginning to fall.' Sexton's announcement made Kidd realize consciously what his body had been trying to tell him for some time. The ship's rapid and increasing forward motion was, in fact, the formerly familiar sensation of falling. And not only was the ship speeding downward toward the planet, but Kidd's own weight was beginning to return, dragging him along the whipstaff and toward the ship's bow. "'Inflate balloons!' he called. "'Smartly now, and make yourself fast to whatever you can!' Immediately the wasters scrambled to the great chests on deck where the balloons had been stowed weeks before. It had taken them a full day to inflate them back on Earth. Now they would have to do it in far less time and in the midst of a gale. Kidd returned his eyes to the sails, constantly adjusting their tack to keep the ever-shifting wind from tearing the ship apart. Should he strike them completely, losing all control, in order to reduce speed?' But before he could answer that question, his attention was drawn back to the ship's waist by a hideous screech of dismay. It was the captain of the waist. Ruined! he cried in anguish. All ruined! In his hands he held a length of black and rotting silk. Kid dashed to the waist, rushing from chest to chest to assess the damage. Every balloon was more or less rotted where it had touched the wood of the chest. The parts in the middle of each bundle were still whole, but because of the way the balloons had been packed, Every one was riddled with holes. There was no conceivable way that even one of them could be made to hold air in the limited time available. Kid looked down at the rotted cloth held taut between his fists. It had been he, personally, who had packed the balloons away. He'd known how important they would be to their survival upon return to Earth, and he'd made sure they were properly folded and stowed. What he had not considered at the time was that they had already been wetted by the first rains of the storm before being deflated and struck. The moist silk, no matter how carefully folded into the chest, was fated to mildew and decay. Kidd, himself, had doomed Mars' adventure. He treated delicate silk like common sailcloth, 
and the sensitive stuff had wilted and died under his care. Helplessly he raised his eyes to Mars, the ruddy glowing ball rushing inexorably toward them, a great sphere of sand and rock against which the ship would now surely be dashed to flinders. Sexton appeared by his side. Without a word, Kid showed him the rotting silk. "'Are they all like this?' the philosopher asked. Kid nodded, not trusting himself to speak. Had he not been nearly weightless, he might have collapsed in despair upon the deck. Sexton immediately drew out his telescope. Staring through it with such concentration, it seemed that he intended to burn a hole through the storm through the intensity of his gaze alone. But at last he collapsed the instrument and turned to Kid with slumped shoulders. "'We cannot sail our way out of this,' he admitted. "'We are already too deep into Mars's planetary atmosphere. "'His gravitic attraction holds us fast,' he sighed. "'If only we could flap our fins and fly away like the Calipicines.' "'It took a moment to recognize the Latin, "'as the name Sexton had given the flying fish. "'Or row our way out of trouble.' "'So many times in his career Kid had put out sweeps "'to shift the ship in a situation where wind and wave had failed him. But though Kidd's heart lay heavy within his breast, Sexton's eyes showed the light of inspiration. "'The oars,' he said. "'The oars! Perhaps they may be of use.' "'In this gale? It snapped like twigs!' Sexton shook his head. "'Consider the fins of the Calipicines!' Struggling to follow Sexton's reasoning, Kidd nevertheless tried to consider the fins. Great, broad, filmy things they were, stiffened with slim ribs of tough, spiny tissue." Each rib was no thicker than a pigeon's quill, but there were so many of them that each one bore only a small proportion of the strain as the fish flapped through the air. No, no, they didn't exactly flap, not like birds. The action was more like rowing. Dear Lord, Kid said, understanding. But we must reduce our speed at once, Sexton said, or we'll have no chance. Strike all sails, Kid called. "'and said word for the sailmaker, the rigger, and the carpenter.' "'After the carpenter, the sailmaker, and the rigger had finished their work, "'there was barely room to move on the deck. "'The least rotted parts of the balloon silk had been cut into strips, "'each strip then fastened between an oar and its neighbor. "'The whole assemblage was intended to form on each side "'a vast spreading wing, like the sail of a Chinese junk. "'But at the moment the ship's waist seemed no more "'than a vast fluttering mass of white fabric streaked with black.' Loops and billows of loose rotted silk luffed wildly in the wind of the ship's descending passage through the Martian air. Even two strong men could barely hold their oar steady against the pull of it. The oarlocks had been reinforced with blocks, great knots of oak and cordage, and loops of the heaviest cable connected each block to its partner on the opposite gunwale. Running under the keel, the network of cables cradled the ship in a vast basket of rope. "'This will never work,' Sexton muttered. "'I was a fool even to suggest it!' It was unlike Sexton to lose faith in his own ideas. Usually he would cling to a notion, no matter how impractical it seemed to Kid, until indisputable success or failure settled the question definitively. But now, with the whole crew's lives riding on this one mad inspiration, the philosopher was shivering in near panic. "'It'll work,' Kid said, slapping Sexton on the back, though he himself was far from certain of it. "'It must.' Ahead and below— Mars now bulked so large that he could no longer be encompassed by the eye as a sphere. Instead, he seemed a horizon, albeit a horizon unnaturally curved. Mars's proximity and the pressure of his atmosphere upon the ship's hull also gave Kid a feeling of weight, a pressure of the deck against his boot soles he'd not felt in nearly two months. 
Sexton said that pressure would never amount to more than a third what it did on Earth, which was good, because after so many weeks adrift, kids' knees felt as weak and wobbly as a newborn fawn's. Or perhaps that was merely terror. Kid strode to the forward edge of the quarterdeck to address the crew, doing his best to put confident strength into his step. On an ordinary ship, he'd have climbed into the rigging of the mizzenmast, but Mars Adventure's mizzenmast was now fastened to her starboard hull. "'We'll not be rowing, lads,' he called above the rush of air. "'Not in the ordinary way. You all know the command, Hold water, do you not?' A chorus of confused assent. Hold water was never used on a ship this large. It meant to brace the oar with one's body to bring a small boat to a rapid halt. "'That's what we'll be doing.' First we'll point the oars astern, then at the command we'll all bring them forward, smooth and handsome. Then hold those oars, hold them for dear life, for the whole ship will be hanging from them. He glanced at Sexton for confirmation and received a nervous nod. Then listen for commands to raise and lower your oars, but only shift them a wee bit, just like trimming sail. He could only see a few of the men's faces, appearing and disappearing behind waves of flapping rotted silk. They seemed nervous and unsure of themselves. Yet those faces also showed hope and trust. Hope and trust in him. Kid set his jaw. He would prove himself worthy of that trust or die in the attempt. Point oars astern, he cried, and fasten oars to oarlocks. With the best discipline they could muster, the men struggled to comply with a command that no captain had likely ever uttered before, using equipment no ship had ever seen before. The forest of oars fell astern, the patched and rotten silk strung between them flapping with a series of sharp reports like small arms fire, as the men worked to tie each oar firmly into its reinforced oarlock. "'Ready, Captain?' the bosun reported after far too long a time. Kid took a breath. This was the moment that would prove Sexton's mad idea, or else doom them all. "'Hold water!' he cried, in a bellow as firm as ever he'd possessed. "'Handsomely now!' The men put their backs into it, grunting with effort as they worked to lever the oars forward. Though they pressed against only air, not water, the force of the ship's great speed on the tattered silken membrane that stretched between each pair of oars was enormous. They were good men, the best. They'd been well fed on the finest rations the king's money could buy, but would even their able seaman's strength be enough? The ship shuddered and yawed as the oars and their burden of fabric spread gradually wider, the rushing air snapping the silk taut. Men and timbers groaned under the strain, and Kid felt himself pressed forward as the surge of air began to slow the hurtling ship. "'Steady, lads!' he called, holding tight to his hat. Juddering, trembling, fighting like a gaffed marlin, Mars Adventure began to transform herself from a ship of the air into something like a gigantic flying fish. By now the great ruddy curve of Mars's horizon had begun to straighten, a few thin wisps of cloud now scudded by to either side and even above. Sexton, bracing himself against the binnacle with his telescope, called out directions and made broad hand gestures, which Kid fought to interpret into commands to his men. "'Larboard sweeps up a point,' he called, and "'Starboard holds steady!' The roar of the wind in the rigging was deafening. Kid didn't always understand what Sexton was asking him to do. He suspected Sexton himself often didn't know either. Often the men overcorrected or misinterpreted Kid's commands— commands they'd never heard before. The ship rolled and pitched violently whenever a pair of men lost control of their oar for even a moment. Yet somehow no oar snapped, and no man was lost overboard, nor did the ship tumble into an uncontrollable spin. And though the water-damaged silk continued to shred, it did not fall completely to bits, at least not yet. 
Closer and closer the ship drew to the land beneath, now whipping past in a red and ochre blur beneath the keel. Strange mineral formations sped by on either side, fantastical shapes of orange stone like nothing kid had ever seen in all his travels. A broad canal filled with shining water, straight as a spar and stretching from horizon to horizon, appeared and then fell behind in a flash. And then came an astounding city, towering spires, broad streets, and just a glimpse of what might be scuttling inhabitants. Kid gaped at the apparition as it receded astern. "'Captain!' cried Sexton. Kid turned about to find a tremendous dune of red sand looming ahead, Sexton gesturing madly with his arms. "'Starboard sweeps down five points!' Kid cried. "'Larboard up five. The men groaned with effort as they strained to comply. The whole ship creaked and shuddered as she leaned heavily to starboard. Kid and Sexton put their whole weight into the whipstaff, providing what little help they could with the rudder. Ponderously, grudgingly, the hurtling ship's course changed. But not enough. They would not escape collision with the dune. "'All forward sweeps up! All aft sweeps down! Hold fast, and God save us all!' With an enormous lurch, the prow rose up into the air, the horizon tilting madly as the ship reared back on her heel. Men cried out as the sudden change in bearing drove their sweeps hard against their bodies. One lost his grip and fell screaming down the length of the deck. Everywhere came the sound of ripping silk and the shuddering crack of tearing wood. Kid and Sexton scrabbled across the tilting deck to the binnacle and held on for dear life. And then, with a horrific, splintering crash like God's own broadside, the ship ran hard aground. Kid knelt in the cold sand head bowed in an attitude of prayer. But he was not praying. He was merely resting his weary bones. Idly he wondered if God heard the prayers of men on Mars. The ship lay largely intact on the breast of the great soft dune of sand upon which she'd run aground. But the two lower masts had been smashed to splinters, and the hull bore two great gashes where they'd been rooted. The landing legs the carpenter had rigged had also torn away, taking with them several hull planks each. Cargo and coal lay scattered across a mile of sand. Somewhere out there, too, lay the bodies of three men who'd been thrown from the ship in the crash. Two more had died of their injuries. Most of the rest were expected to recover. Kidd himself carried his left arm in a sling, counting himself lucky to have endured no more than a wrenched shoulder. By day, the climate of Mars's surface was not dissimilar from that of the air in the planet's vicinity. Cold and dry, with a thin wind that whistled across the vastness and whipped up dancing whirls of dust. But when the sun had set an hour after the wreck, the first darkness they'd seen after two months of sailing the shadowless air between the planets, the cold had grown far deeper, biting hard even through Kid's heaviest coat. Most of the men had not even that much clothing to protect them. None of them had slept much, and the rising of the weak, wan sun had done little more than make the dismal situation more visible. A chuffing sound of boots on sand made Kid look up. It was Edmonds, the quartermaster, looking haggard and worn. "'We've finished the inventory, sir.' Kid merely waited. "'There's beef and peas for two months at half-rations. But them water casks—' Edmonds shook his head. "'Half of them sprung in the crash, sir. We've maybe two weeks.' Kid took a breath, not knowing what to say. Before he could form a reply, there came a shout from above. One of the men stood atop the ship's prow, one foot braced on the fractured bowsprit, waving his arms and crying out words whose meaning was swept away by winds and lost in the vast, thin desert air. Awkwardly, Kid levered himself to his feet and cupped his good hand behind his ear. "'Say again!' he called. The man made a speaking trumpet of his hands. 
Martians! The natives somewhat resembled crabs, man-sized crabs with only four limbs, drawn out lengthwise and walking about on their hind legs. But though they had two arms and two legs, those limbs bent in all the wrong places, and both limbs and body were covered with a hard shell that shaded from white on the belly to the same red ochre as the sand on the back. There was no distinct head, only a bulge at the top of the torso, from which sprouted two black eyes on flexible stalks, like a lobster's, and a vertical mouth, like the working end of a blacksmith's pincers. Each hand resembled a crab in itself, the fingers tipped with vicious-looking claws. They waited in a group on the sand. There were over a hundred of them. Kid lowered his telescope and turned to Sexton. Do you suppose the savages speak English? Sexton looked terrible. His finery a shambles, wig long vanished, and cheeks gone black with stubble. Unlikely. But they're no savages. How so? Sexton peered again through his telescope, and Kid did the same. They're clothing. Note the colors and the patterns. Very sophisticated. Somewhat reminiscent of Persian carpet. And especially that one in the center, the one with the hat. He appears to have jewelry at his shoulders and wrists. Kid squinted, but still could not make out as much detail as the younger Sexton. All I see is the swords. Each native carried a long, thin sword, curved like a Persian shamshir, thrust scabbardless through the belt. Smaller blades, likewise slim and curved, were also in evidence. They gleamed in the pale sunlight. Sexton scoffed. We are armed as well, are we not? And we are no savages. To that, Kid had no reply. Kid did his best to hold his head high as he slogged awkwardly down the slope of soft sand. But between his injured arm and the satchel full of materials for negotiation—gold coins, glass beads, dried beef, a flask of water, a Bible—he had a hard time keeping his balance. The Martians, he noted, had wide, flexible feet, well-suited for walking on sand. Their lower garments were loose pantaloons like the Hindus, cuffed at the knee, leaving the red carapace lower legs bare. Focusing on these details helped keep Kid from curling up on the sand in a terrified ball. Sexton preceded him, holding out his open, empty hands. We greet you in the name of King William the Third of England and Ireland and Second of Scotland. The Martian with the hat stepped forward from the rest. He had a distinct but not unpleasant odor, something between horses and cinnamon, and the bright metal fixed to his carapace at several points had the appearance of real gold. Chittering and clattering in his own language, he pointed one chitinous hand up to the sky, then swept it downward in a gesture that encompassed the Mars adventure, the Englishman, and the Martians as well. Then he stood silent with folded hands. Sexton and Kidd exchanged a glance. Even the natural philosopher was plainly baffled by this display. "'Perhaps we should show him the Bible,' Kidd suggested. "'He waved up at heaven.' "'I've no better notion,' Sexton confessed." Kid handed him the heavy book, and he opened it to Genesis. "'This is our most sacred book,' Sexton said to the native, presenting it reverently. "'And this is the story of the creation of the universe.' The Martian took up the book, examining on all sides with chittered commentary to his fellows. He ran crab-leg claws down the columns of text as though reading, and tapped delicately at the leather cover and spine. He held the book close to his face, the eyes bending in together in a most disturbing manner. Then, to Kid's horror, he slowly and deliberately tore out a page, folded it, and crammed it between his hideous jaws. 
Rigid with mortification, Kidd and Sexton could do nothing more than stand and stare round-eyed, as the Martian chewed and swallowed the page with an apparent attitude of careful contemplation. No London gourmand in his favorite club had ever sampled a glass of wine with such keen attention. Even the black and lidless eyes appears to lose focus, the native seemingly concentrating on the flavor of the vellum and ink. Sexton was nearly vibrating with rage. "'That is the word of the Lord!' he spat. Kidd, too, was offended, but not so much as Sexton, and he was keenly aware of the dozens of armed Martians who had moved in to surround them on all sides. "'Easy, doctor,' he muttered low, putting a hand on Sexton's shoulder. With a visible effort, Sexton calmed himself. But Kidd had to physically restrain him when the Martian tore out a second and a third page, tearing each one into smaller bits and sharing them out among the other Martians nearby. "'It seems they find the word of our Lord quite palatable,' Kidd said, as he held Sexton back with his one good arm across Sexton's narrow chest. He himself was so stunned by the Martian's blasphemous feast that he felt near to breaking out in a fit of hysterical giggles. Sexton took a deep breath, then patted Kidd's hand. Kidd released him. "'Forgive them, Lord,' Sexton said, casting his eyes heavenward, "'for they know not what they do.' While the two men had been talking, the lead Martian had handed a Bible to one of the others. A third native now came forward bearing a squat glass bottle, which the leader took and presented to Sexton. Spiraling marks, possibly writing, were etched into the bottle's surface. The contents were a deep amber in color. Sexton and Kidd exchanged a quizzical look. It was Kidd who removed the stopper, which was made of some kind of flexible resin, and delicately sniffed the liquid within. He quirked an eyebrow, not trusting himself to speak before tasting. The flavor was unusual, with hints of ginger and pine, but the rich, mellow burn as the liquid slid down Kidd's throat was so familiar that a tear stung his eye. "'It's not quite Ferentosh,' he said to Sexton, "'but damn me, that is fine whiskey!' Sexton blinked, then turned and bowed to the Martian. "'It seems we have a basis for commerce,' he said. Kidd warmed his hands over a Martian prince's fire, marveling at how very far he'd come from Newgate Prison. Despite the difficulties of communication, the Martians had been eager to trade their goods for books, belts, and anything else made of leather. The Martian meats were palatable though spicy and a bit gamey in flavor, and Kidd and his men had been allowed the use of a small rounded building, which appeared to have been carved seamlessly from a single piece of sandstone. Sexton theorized the stone was in fact merely sand fused together with the Martian's own saliva, but Kidd tried not to think about that. As for Sexton, he was happy as a clam at high tide. He occupied himself studying the Martian flora and fauna, the language, and astronomy. He said he'd found the planet had two tiny moons— he seemed perfectly content to remain here for the rest of his life. But the ship's stores of acceptable trade items were limited. Some of the men had had success exchanging their labor and entertainment, such as playing on the penny whistle, for the Martian liquor and other sundries, but they couldn't go on like this forever. Already, Kid thought, the Martian with the hat was beginning to cast inhospitable looks upon him with his black protuberant eyes. Kidd stood up from the fire pit and made his way across the crowded common room to where Sexton sat studying one of the Martian books, a long spool of thin steel etched with spindly writing. Martian steel was plentiful and much better than English, easily the equal of the best Spanish steel. Sexton sat engrossed for some time before noticing Kidd's presence. "'I think this may be a verb,' he said, holding up an inscribed strip of metal. "'I have a question for you,' Kidd said. "'Of natural philosophy.' Oh, come outside with me. The two of them drew cloaks about themselves. 
rich, soft cloaks of the brightly colored Martian fabrics, for the tiny weak sun was long vanished from the sky. The street outside was quiet and very dark, the Martians being generally stay-at-homes at night, and a million stars stared down, unwinking. "'Which of them is the Earth?' Kid asked, clouds of breath puffing from his mouth. Sexton looked upward for a moment, then pointed. "'Just beyond the eastern horizon, I believe. She should rise within the hour.' "'A sea,' Kid gazed in the indicated direction. "'What would it take to get there?' "'New balloons, of course.' Sexton replied without hesitation. He'd plainly considered the question in detail already, if only as an intellectual exercise. Uh, But there's plenty of this fine fabric available. He rubbed his cloak between two fingers. Food and water can be obtained from the natives, uh, likewise coal, to heat air for the ascent. The biggest problem is replacing the masts. Aye, the masts. The Martians did not seem to use wood for construction at all. In this city of stone and steel, they'd seen no wood bigger than kindling and repairing all the other damage from the crash, but the masts are the sticking point. Sexton clapped Kit on the shoulder. Still, it's not so bad here, eh? Now come inside. Tis cold. In a moment, Kid replied. While Sexton returned to his books, Kid stared off to the east, as though he could will the bright blue star of Earth to rise more quickly. Kid grubbed through the box of knuckle roots near the fire pit, looking for the ones that were the least scrawny and fibrous. The white, knobby roots were tough and flavorless, but the Martians, too, cared little for them. A hundredweight could be obtained for just a few hours' labor. Kid suspected the roots of being animal fodder, but preferred not to inquire too deeply into the question. They were keeping him and his men alive. The ship's books and leather had all been eaten weeks ago, putting an end to trade for luxuries such as meat and rum and sweets. But water and wood had to be hauled on Mars as well as anywhere else, and the men, with the earth-borne muscles of able seamen, could lift and haul far more than any Martian. There were things to herd, which were nothing like sheep and yet acted very much like sheep, and the canals required constant maintenance. All this work kept them supplied with food, of a sort, and water, and coal, but it was no life for a sailor. Selecting several roots from the pile, Kid prepared to roast them, but when he went to stoke the fire, he found the cloth basket that served as a coal scuttle was empty. Kid cursed. Bad as they were when roasted, raw knuckle roots were completely inedible. Sexton, he called, tossing the basket his way. Bring us some coal from the pile, would you? While he waited for the coal, Kid arranged the roots in the fire pit, bemoaning his fate. But by the time he'd placed the last root, Sexton and the coal had still not appeared. Damn you, man, he called over his shoulder. What's the delay? but Sexton did not reply, and was nowhere to be seen. Sighing with exasperation at the easily distracted philosopher, Kid rose and stalked into the next room, where he found Sexton standing by the coal pile with the half-filled basket at his feet, staring with great intensity at a lump of coal. Surely, Kid snapped, you can leave off your studies for five minutes for the sake of our supper. In reply, Sexton thrust the filthy thing into Kid's hands. What do you think of this? The black lump was not coal at all, but wood covered in coal dust. The Martians used small fragments of wood as kindling. This lump was much bigger than those, nearly as large as a fist, but apart from that it was not unusual. It's wood, Kid said with a shrug. What of it? The rings, man! Look at the rings! Kid rolled his eyes, then peered closer, and his heart began to race. From the curvature, this must have come from a tree at least three feet in diameter. Exactly, Sexton pointed to several similar lumps in the cloth basket. And these are the same. 
"'Yet there's not a tree to be seen anywhere near here.' "'He picked up a chunk of wood and held it between them. "'We must discover their source.' "'Kid slogged to the top of a dune, "'surveying the horizon ahead through his telescope. "'Nothing!' he called down to Sexton. "'Not a damned thing!' Not awaiting a response, he headed back down the dune, his feet sending cascades of the fine, cold sand sliding down toward where Sexton sat rubbing his feet. The natural philosopher's face showed vexation and exhaustion both. I would have sworn that the adjective he used indicated a distance of between two and ten miles. He took a drink from his water skin. My water's over half gone. Perhaps we should turn back. Kid looked back along the well-trodden track they'd followed for the past four hours, then forward to where it vanished around a curve. "'You're certain he indicated this path, and that he understood what we're looking for?' Sexton shrugged. "'It's a poxy-difficult language.' Kid took a sip of water, shielding his eyes against the sun, and considered their situation. It was nearly noon, and all they'd seen in four hours of walking was endless sand and mineral formations that had once seemed exotic. Though his own water skin was not as depleted as Sexton's, he too was tempted to abandon this snipe hunt. Yet it was the only hope they had.' He stared out across the desert, so much like an ocean, yet red and dry and motionless, and, unlike the sea with its constant rush of wind and wave, oppressively silent. No, no, not quite silent. Could that be? My feet are— Sexton began. Hush! Kid snapped and cut him off with a gesture. Kid listened hard, and heard a sound he'd not heard in many months. Axes. Axes chopping wood. The sound had been hidden from them before by the noise of their own feet on the sand. They hurried forward around the curve and soon found themselves on the edge of a canyon perhaps two hundred feet deep. They had been only a few hundred yards from it and had not even suspected its existence. A sandy track, apparently carved from the canyon wall by Martians, switchbacked down from the desert's surface. And at the bottom... My God! Kid said. The bottom of the canyon was thick with trees enormous trees, a hundred or even a hundred and fifty feet tall. Each honey-blonde trunk rose straight and smooth from the dark loamy floor to a single great tuft of foliage just below the canyon's lip. Groups of Martians moved among them, tiny at the feet of these towering giants. As they watched, one of the trees fell gently, slowly to the canyon floor. The Martians leaped upon the fallen giant and began hacking it into tiny pieces with their axes. "'What in God's name are they doing?' Kid cried. The growing conditions at the bottom of this canyon must be nearly unique, Sexton mused, but as we've seen, coal is plentiful here. Perhaps they are so accustomed to burning coal that they must cut their wood into coal-sized chunks. Kid shook his head. Prisoners of habit. While Kid stared down into the canyon, Sexton paced excitedly. I must determine how these trees survive in the midst of a desert, he muttered. This could be my life's work. At that statement, Kid's eyes went wide, and his already dry mouth grew drier still. These trees were the final piece in the puzzle of how to return to Earth, but if he returned without Sexton, he'd face the noose anew. Furthermore, he realized he'd grown rather fond of the silly goose. "'But Sexton,' Kid said, placing an arm around the philosopher's shoulders, "'if you make of these trees your life's work, who will help us to rebuild the ship? Surely there are improvements to be made in the design.' "'Surely,' Sexton said, his eyes unfocusing as he considered the question. And once we are airborne, we must find a new prevailing wind to bear us homeward. For this, we may require new theories of the motions of air. A difficult problem indeed, Sexton patted his pockets for his notebook. 
Consider, too, the problem of bringing the trees whole out from this canyon, transporting them to the ship and raising them up as masts. Sexton's head came up suddenly. Masts? Masts, Kit acknowledged. But, but that's exactly what we need, said Sexton, and laughed. <laughs> masts! Masts! Kid cried, and he too burst out laughing. The two men held hands and danced around and around, bouncing with glee high into the thin Martian air. Mars Adventure floated fifty feet above the sand, straining against her mooring cables. Above her loomed eight vast balloons, each slightly larger than before, an enormous, crazy patchwork of bright Martian colors. They had taken up nearly every yard of fabric in the city, purchased with many weeks of back-breaking labor, but both Martians and Englishmen seemed pleased with the exchange. The new masts were astounding, straight and smooth and so very light they'd taken only half the crew to hoist out of the canyon and fit into place. And this was not merely the lighter weight of everything on Mars. These trees, products of a tiny, dry, and alien planet, bore a wood lighter and stronger than any on Earth. They'd packed the hold with as many logs as they could cram in. We'll build a whole fleet of airships, Sexton swore, and come back for more. We'll make our fortune with these logs. Not I, Kid told him. Sexton blinked in astonishment, then grinned. Surely the famous Captain Kidd does not lack an avarice. Kidd returned Sexton's grin. Have no fears on that score. Upon my return, I expect the gratitude of a king. And with those proceeds, I intend to settle down in Scotland, my ancestral home, with all the ferentosh I can drink. He leaned over the taffrail, looking down upon a city full of Martians, all a chitter with excitement to see the great ship fly. Fare thee well, ye great crabs, he cried, then turned to the bosun. Cast off! The men leapt into action, and a moment later, with a great soaring bound, Mars' adventure sprang away into the blue Martian sky. This has been The Wreck of the Mars' Adventure by David D. Levine, read by David D. Levine. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is David. David, what can I say? <laughs> you know what I mean? Thank you again. You know, thank you one time. Thank you again for the narration as well. Just up there. Thank you so much. I just want to mention as well, like I say, Arabelle of Mars, which is coming out from David from in Tor, from Tor in June 2016, takes place in the same universe as this, the Wreck of the Mars Adventure. But where Mars Adventure is set in 1702, Arabella of Mars is set in 1813. Novelette, The End of the Silk Road, published in fantasy and science fiction, is also set in that same universe, but in 1936. And David says he has, you know, many other ideas for kind of stories in this kind of history and in this universe as well. So there's a link on to David's site. Honestly, get some of this work. You know, this guy's pushing out some fantastic work there. Thoroughly, you know, kind of endorsed by Starship. So just an amazing writer. And... I mean, he's got like he's got the awards to kind of prove it. You know I mean? It's not just kind of me blathering on about it. David is up there as one of the kind of cracking writers of our time. So a big thank you, David. So talking about other good writers, Jeff Lane has you know kind of me and Jeff's known each other through Starships over. Do you know what I mean? For a, a, a number of years there now, right? God, yeah, right the way back, and you know. Jeff's helped out and, you know, I've seen his kind of little career, his writing career kind of take off there now. And I got a letter, an email from, you know, his kind of time travel story, one way is getting filmed, you know, or is getting made into a film. And 
you know, like Andy, we are in the Martian. Do you know what I mean? It's just you, you sit at the computer and you sit by yourself. You know what I mean? And you kind of you have these ideas. And if you're lucky enough, do you know what I mean? <laughs> you're lucky enough. But if you're lucky enough to have that skill to put those words on that screen and kind of make them kind of coherent and kind of everyone you know raves about them, then someone comes along and says, "I can envision that." You know, on the kind of on the film, it's just. That just must be like, well, it's hard to imagine, but it must be just a, such a great feeling, do you know? It's happening to Jeff now, and like, see, I've carried out a little interview with him just to, to find out about that process. So, Jeffrey, yes, <laughs> come on, it's, yes, it's, it's, it's official. It's official there now. Come on, no, no messing around. So, I get an email off you, or I, I knew for a, a while there's been something kind of stirring. Then I, then I, sorry, I get an official email from a filmmaker who's you know going to make one one of your stories into a into a film and it was just like eh, the last you know what i mean it's all of a sudden it's like reality and it all seems to be kicking off is that tell us about it and tell us what's happening yeah so uh, there is a, a company in england that's uh making one of my novels into a movie so it's uh it's my time travel novel one way and uh, it's it's actually been brewing like you said it's been brewing for several years and I've been talking to the director producer about it. And um, it's one of those things we've had to sort of move the ball along inch an inch at a time. Um, it was initially, uh, they initially started off as a project. If I give you the whole sort of genealogy of it, it started off that they filmed a trailer for one of my other books. And that was sort of to uh, one be sort of a literary trailer for me, but two use that to shop around to get some funding for the film. And if they, they could sort of say, hey, look at this trailer, look at what we've got. Uh, and if you give us some money, we can really make a big movie out of this. Um, and then we decided to switch gears to um, another one of my books because this, the scope of One Way is a little bit probably more doable uh, from a budgetary perspective and logistic perspective than the other book, the, This Paper World, that they were looking at. So uh, when we decided to make that our goal, uh, we started pursuing that really heavily, probably starting last year. And I spent most of this year actually doing the screenplay adaptation for it. And then on their on their side, they've been doing casting and hiring crew and that sort of thing. So we're all ready to go. We are all casted, crewed. We, we have um, shooting locations. We've got um, product placement deals in place for people that are giving us equipment and things to to use in the film and uh, now it's just a matter of getting that final push for funding and really that's to pay the cast and crew for the most part there's some some equipment buys and rentals and stuff in there but most of the funding is going to pay the people who've really some of them have been committed to this project for close to a year now or more and um and now we want to actually give them a paycheck so that's how, and that's where we stand today. How how much Jeff are you involved with it on the day to day? Because like you see, your, your film company and everything over there is is over here, is it? I'm guessing in the UK because they're a UK company, and you're and you're on the other side of the pond. So are, are you coming over by any chance? Or no, not this trip around. I uh, I still have a day job, which is pretty demanding, especially this time of year. Uh, so I won't be coming over for this shoot, but uh, if this one's successful and we really start to get the ball rolling, I'll definitely be coming over for future ones. I've actually told the producers 
you know, I want to have, uh, I want to get my, my face in front of the camera, as scary as that is, to you know, little bit parts or something, just sort of walking through or one line or something, just so it's a, a thing. But not, not on this film, though. So, you know, when you, you kind of say everything is kind of, in the, you know, in place, in together to kind of kick off, how, how do you go about that? You know, like, say, if, if you're over there, is, it must have been, like, some monumental task to kind of, or for someone to get everything put together and with a kind of budget to keep it all in there, you know, not let it spiral out of... You haven't put anything, Jeff, on credit cards or anything like that, have you? <laughs> I haven't. In fact, I, I sort of made that very clear right up front. I said, this this cannot, you know... I, in fact, I shouldn't say I made it clear. My wife made it very that, clear. That's the <laughs> <laughs> I would not be spending a single dime on this. And, and the producer is very good about that he said no 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 this and i won't i won't attempt the british accent because i don't want to offend anybody but he's saying absolutely this is meant this is supposed to put money in your pocket never take money out of it so i don't know what he's got going on on credit cards and debt and uh but it, he's been really taking on all of the burden of of that um and for me it's just been time i've been uh in addition to being brought on as the the screenplay writer um he's also brought me on as a producer so We've had a lot of Skype calls and he sent me over, you know, audition footage and practice footage and all this stuff. So I've been on the sidelines cheering him on and sort of adding some creative, um, you know, consultation to it. And then I've been, you know, adding some writing to the sort of ancillary stuff around it, like the like the Indiegogo verbiage and stuff like that but yeah no financially i i don't think i'm on the hook for anything what's it like then jeff from a writer to a screenwriter do you know what i mean because i know how good you are as a writer but what's it like that must have been a whole new ball game for you is it it was it really was a, a fun one um and one that i my hat is off to anybody who's ever had to do it uh and the first thing that i realized early on was all those times I've complained about, oh, but it's different than the book. Well, now I know why. <laughs> now I'm the culprit that's that's making those changes and doing it because you can't – it's really difficult to go straight from page to screen. There are a lot of things that you have to say, well, I resolved this in the book with some internal dialogue or some narration that explained that, and now I've got to find a way to convey that on the screen. And there's a lot of traps where you know you try to avoid all those – you know, cheesy tropes of one character giving a lot of narrative explanation to another character when that character should just look at them and go, yeah, I know that, duh. You know, some... <laughs> why are you telling me that? I, you, I just watched the whole thing just happen. So I'm trying to avoid all of that. So you, you have to sort of find ways to show things on the screen and honestly modify the story a little bit to, to, to make it flow a little bit differently for the screen. So how it's been super how, fun. Sorry, how long then from just say, let's say or everything goes great. How long then? What's your, your time for like a film shoot? So they are set to shoot um, mid October into November. So that's coming right up here in the next few weeks. Uh, the funding it was sort of contingent on getting the funding, and now uh, as we're into the Indiegogo campaign, we're talking about. A plan B already. So what if we don't get the funding or what if we don't get enough of the funding? So we're already talking about modifications to the shoot schedule that we can still maybe keep roughly to that timeline, um, even if it's spread out. And instead of doing 
two straight weeks of, of filming where everybody's sort of all in. What if we were to try to get people together on the weekends and stretch it out over a few weekends and that sort of thing? Because the casting crew, they're, they're so fantastic. They've all sort of come to the producer and, and the director and said, um, hey, you know what? We want to get paid to do this, but we're so invested in this story and we're so invested in this process so far. We'll we'll do it on faith. You know, we trust in you and we trust in the project enough that, you know, we don't have to have the money up front. We'll we'll do it. And these are real like jobbing actors and you know directors of photography and you know wardrobe people. These aren't like amateurs we plucked off the street. These are people that need these paychecks, but they've been so fantastic about saying, look, let's just shoot it. And we'll, you know, the money will come down the road if we don't have it up front. I mean, it must so that's, be that's it, a rough schedule. It must be pretty tough because I'm I'm listening to Michael Palin's, you know, like diaries, and you know, someone, you know, Monty Python's Michael Palin's went in his diaries. You know, the the trouble he has to get funding for, and you think, God, Michael Palin's having trouble to get funding for projects. You know what I mean? So, just what happens, like, say you make it then. Will someone take it and run it, you know, like in cinemas? Or how, how do, you, do you finance that part of it? So the next step is, so once it's made and once you have a product, because we don't have a studio deal right now, no one's bought it sort of on spec. Um, the next thing is we start to look for distribution channels. And in this day and age, it's you've got a lot of roads open to you, to, you know, with the whole internet and all of that. I think... Um, Sort of the traditional route and the one we might go first, and I don't have as much of a say in this part, so I'm just along for the ride at that point. But, um, you know, hitting the festival circuit, taking it out to some film festivals uh, and seeing if a studio likes what they see and wants to to buy it for distribution. Um, it, failing that, um, there are some some different channels that you as filmmakers can go to and get um, video on demand releases or, you know, internet channels and that sort of thing. Um, so we're open to all roads, but I think we'll start with the big enchilada first and try to get a, a, a real sort of massive distribution deal. And then we'll work our way backwards from that, seeing how that goes. Well, let's talk about your funding and like Indiegogo. Why, why Indiegogo? Why not Kickstarter? Well, I, you know, it was actually going to be Kickstarter for a while, and at the very last minute, it changed to Indiegogo. There was also another one in the mix, um, Seed and Spark, which was interesting because it it has a distribution piece of it built into it at the tail end. So not only do you get your funding and get get your film made, but then they have distribution deals as sort of an offshoot of that. So we did the research, um, and we had an assistant producer on board at, at one point she actually had to, to move on to another project but she had a lot of crowdfunding experience a lot more than I think anybody else on the team did and in the end it sort of steered us toward Indiegogo uh, I, I couldn't tell you the specific reasons behind it but it it seems to be a good platform and um, that's just sort of where we jumped on to what would what would someone like the average punt get then Jeff, if he if he wants to kind of support, and like you see, it's kind of payment for the you know the, the actors and everybody like that to put a bit in. But what what would a punt I get who's willing to kind of donate something? Well, there's a lot of different donation levels, so we wanted to make sure we built something for everybody. So you can 
Um, their donation, you can donate anything. If you wanted to donate a pound, you could. There's no reward for that. But I think the first reward starts, and I'm going from memory, and I apologize if I get this wrong, but um, I think around four pounds, um, you get an ebook copy of the book. Uh, and then it goes up from there. There are lots of neat things where it's uh, there's some bundles with some digital media. So that would include ebook copies of my novels, uh, a, a, a digital copy of the production script, um, digital copies of the soundtrack. And then once you go beyond the digital stuff, um, we'll actually be producing limited numbers of um, uh, soft uh, paperback version of the novel. So that'll be a unique version of the book that's created only for backers. And that's limited to, I think, uh, a thousand copies. Uh, we'll have some signed uh, editions of that. We'll have some signed editions of pr a production script that's actually been used on the on the filming on the set and then the rewards go up from there to actual set experiences so you can actually um, come on set you can be an extra you can hang with the cast and crew uh, and then you can actually buy in to be an associate producer or an executive producer um, which means additional access to the cast and crew and you'll get your name listed in imdb as being part of the, the cast and crew of, of the production it's amazing now when you think, you know, what's on offer, you know, to try and get some films done. Do you know what I mean? Even like you say, putting in money there to be part of the the, the kind of crew and to kind of, you know, put your kind of or two penneths worth in anyways. You know, that's a kind of remarkable little uh, bit you've got there, Jeff. So well done, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's like I said, it's been a team effort. So I didn't I didn't come up with all of that. There's a lot of people that sort of put their heads together and said, all right, we need to find levels that you know, would, you know, everybody can contribute all the way up to someone who's just got, you know, tens of thousands of pounds burning a hole in their pocket, and we'd be glad to take it off them as well. <laughs> yeah, tell us, yeah, I want to find them ones as well. So <laughs> is it down down the, the road then of this production, this film, will there be DVD copies for, for us to buy? Yes, that's, um, that's actually one of the rewards too. So it's sort of like a pre-buy of the DVD. Uh, we're, we're hoping to actually eventually produce um, Blu-rays, but we're committing to at least DVD copies. And if we can, depending on the production costs, um, produce Blu-rays, we'll produce those as well, or instead of perhaps the DVDs. Well, Jeff, all you got to do now is go out and get it made. Simple as. Eh? That's yeah. <laughs> just, just like that. <laughs> well, listen, Jeff, it's been lovely. Honestly, I'm, you know, I get this excitement, but I kind of, you know, We've been kind of friends online and kind of through Starship Sova for years. And then, you know, you see people kind of, you know, just grabbing something by the horns and just running with it. And this, man, this is probably one of the ultimate things, you know what I mean? Because you just got to look at, I keep on at the moment, you know, harping on about Andy Weir and the Martian and what, you know, what's happened to him. You know, anything's possible. So I just want to wish you the best of luck with this. Thank you, Tony. I appreciate it. And, you know, I, I have been so uh, blessed just by being able to be part of the starship sofa community over the past i think i was doing the math the other day i think it's been eight years oh, or more no, nine no. years I, I know i was there in the double digits at least back when it was still two shows the oral delights and the and the regular the starship sofa sort of author profile 
Um, I, I've loved every minute of it. I try not to miss an episode, but you know, the, the schedules get busy and sometimes I'll get behind. Oh, I got to catch up to where Tony and, and... and the day job spoils it as well, isn't it? You know what I mean? It's, oh, it's I got to get rid of that day job. <laughs> yes. We all, yeah, we all want it, Jeff. We all stand in queue for that one, mind you. That, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm there before you with that one. Well, listen, Jeff, honestly, take good care of yourself and let's, let's get this happening. And I would honestly, it would give me a thrill to be sitting in my living room putting in one of your DVDs and watching a film. God, man, that would just be fantastic. I hope everybody kind of helps over and goes over to Indiegogo. I'll put a link on so we can, you know, get Jeff and give them some money because hopefully it's going to go ahead anyways. But, you know, to do that, like I said, to put a DVD in and just watch something that's happened, you know, a friend of mine, that would be fantastic. Jeff, look after yourself, sir. Thank you, Tony. Thank you very much. So, support Jeff and, and his film. There's some links on there. Jeff, good luck, honestly. This is just like an outstanding, you know, time in your life. You kind of just appreciate it. You know what I mean? I know everything's kind of rush, rush, rush. Just appreciate what's happened because, you know what I mean? It's just like these things go and gone and, wow, man, just how exciting for you. How exciting. Jeff, thank you so much sharing, you know, kind of what's, what's happening in your world. And like I say, good luck to you. You know what I mean? This is just... Tremendous, do you know what I mean? It's getting made by a British company, man. <laughs> to get it in, didn't I? Eh? You had to come over here in the UK and get it done, eh? But I'm the bloody Americans, lad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, listen, hey, coffee strong, dear. And all got fired up there. Patriotic. So that is Starship Sovas. Sure, what was it? I forget now, 404. 405, you know, every, links are on to the kind of site, come over, you know what I mean, like say, pop over and see Becky's site, big thank you to Alex, you know what I mean, and kind of, God, David D. Levine, and then we'll have a story there, and Jeff, you know what I mean, big thank you to Amy as well, kind of, voice from the talents, and Mark, being fantastic, fantastic indeed. So, listen, I've just had a word off Jeremy as well, Jeremy, our assistant editor, man, Jeremy, on, I don't know what he's on, because... He's not getting it. I didn't get it when I was kind of young and keen, but he is fired up. And he's just dropped me an email there and just told us about another author. And I've actually just read and thought the book was fantastic. And hard to get this, you know what I mean? Hard to get even cracked that shell to get near this author. And wow, man, Jeremy's done it. And look forward to that. Just one of my idols in, you know what I mean, in kind of storytelling is, is coming on the show with a story. And Next week, I've got an interview which you don't want to miss. That's all I can say. Yes, it's a little bit science fiction, but it's there's a, not a lot of it really into the kind of science fiction. But it is a for me personally, it's you know, I've interviewed, yeah, I don't want to kind of drop names, you know, but I've interviewed Bradbury, you know, the kind of the biggins, do you know what I mean? But this, this one, along with say Linda Spinkler, who was you know, the Cassini, you know, this is up there with that interview. So please pop over next week and, and have a listen because there's an interview coming which I'm very, very proud of. Until next week, I'd just like to see it. Good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. A 
This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.